great ancestor Ella Baker said, strong people don't need no leaders. Join us every Monday night and you'll be a believer. The On the Ground podcast, where we dive deep into the artistic science of community organizing. And you can follow us on Facebook at the Journey for Justice Alliance, Twitter at J4J underscore USA, and our website, new and improved, www.j4jalliance.com. See me on the ground. This is your man, Brother G2. We want to thank you all for listening and, and tuning in, and our numbers are growing, and we really appreciate you. And we don't disappoint. We know that on the ground, we have heroes that are fighting for justice every day. And we want to make sure that you all know we don't want one Malcolm X. We don't want one Cesar Chavez. We don't want one Harriet Tubman. We want a million Malcolm X's, a million Harriet Tubman. And those sisters and brothers are doing work in our communities around the world. And I am honored today to have my sister, Mercedes Martinez, and my sister Lourdes from uh, Puerto Rico to lay out to everyone what the situation is in Puerto Rico, what's happened after the hurricane, and the valiant fight that people are waging to save public education in Puerto Rico. So once again, sisters, thank you all for joining the On the Ground podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. So what we want to do before we get into our question. I want to say to everybody that's listening, so you all don't think I forgot, I want to say what's happening, Obarigani, peace, hola, what's up, and what up, though? So what we want to do is start off with our member spotlight. And our member spotlight today goes into the state that is basically a nation within itself, and that's the state of Texas, and lift up the work of my sisters and brothers and Texas Organizing Project, better known as TOP. I've visited them several times. Uh, they have over 100,000 members in the city of Houston, the city of San Antonio, and Dallas, Texas. And TOP is organizing to expand sustainable community schools, and particularly in Dallas and San Antonio, they have been successful in expanding community schools and fighting school closings. And they got a lot of work to do in Houston because they are trying to do a state takeover in Houston, Texas. So our sisters and brothers are organizing and making sure that people don't lose the right to determine how their educational institutions shake out. TOP is a multi-issue organization. They work on issues of housing, they work on immigration issues, and they work on education justice. So I want to lift up uh, my family in TOP, you know, my sister Sharon and, and all my other folks over there, and just say salute to you for the work that you're doing and we want to say that the Journey for Justice Alliance is with you. You know, keep fighting and keep swinging. So thank you all for the work that you do. And what I'd like to do now is once again welcome my sisters, Lourdes and my sister Mercedes Martinez to the On the Ground podcast. Mercedes, why don't we start with you? You are the president of FMPR. And why don't you explain to people just, you know, who you are, your organization, and why you do the work you do? I am the president of the Teachers Federation of Puerto Rico. I've been the president for the past three years, but I'm also an ESL teacher mm. in Puerto Rico, elementary level, mother of three, and I've been in the union for the past almost 15 years. I'm fighting against those that want to dismantle public education and leave our children with absolutely nothing but misery. So right. the work that we're doing in our union 
is very important because it's not just about the working class and its right. It's the right of every child, every Jew to have quality, accessible public education in our country. Mm-hmm. So here we are. And I'm so excited to be here with you. Yes, ma'am. None but love, Mercedes. Mercedes is a warrior, y'all. I, I've uh, spent a lot of time with my sister. and She's the real deal. So anybody that Mercedes says is cool is cool with me. And so she got Sister Lourdes on the line. So Lourdes, why don't you introduce yourself and, and say kind of, you know, who you are, your organization and the work that you do. Okay. Uh, my name is Lourdes Santavaya. I'm a divorced mother of two. They have a dad and we try to co-parent, although sometimes we want to choke each other. Um <laughs> I'm an infant and young child feeding specialist. I'm a lactation consultant, Mm -hmm. but in general, I consider myself an activist and a community Mm -hmm. organizer. Mm -hmm. I'm a public school mother. I'm on food stamps. I'm trying to get off food stamps, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I would be interested in putting my children in public school anyway. I went to public school, but I can't afford a private school anyway. So I'm an equity advocate. Equity is my thing, I would say. Like the first thing that happened at our school was one day when I went to pick up grades, they -hmm. wanted us to sign a paper saying that they wanted to make our school a charter school and they wanted Mm -hmm. us to sign in favor. And Mm -hmm. I am the person who, when I fill out the school papers, I write in the margins and say only if it's constitutional. And Mm -hmm. so when they gave me that, I said, I do not support charter schools Mm -hmm. and did not sign it. So when I heard that they wanted to make our school a charter school, I said, I am I am with the school in any way to organize Mm -hmm. against it because I know what that means. Yes, ma'am. Well, it is an honor to have both of you sisters on. Thank you for the work that you do. And let's dive on in. So, Mercedes, maybe you can start off by just explaining to folks sort of the tragedy that happened in Puerto Rico and what was the response of the government in regards to public schools after the hurricane? Well, Puerto Rico was hit by a Category 5 hurricane, Hurricane Maria, in September 20th, 2017. It's going to be two years now from that hurricane. It was the hardest, meanest hurricane that we've experienced in the past 100 years. Mm. It destroyed over 300,000 homes. Mm. 75,000 of them were damaged permanently. We had more than 3,000 deaths related to causes directly to the hurricane. Mm-hmm. The response of the government was very neglectful up to this day. We still have people living under blue tarps. Hurricane season is about to begin again, and we still have people with no roofs over their heads. So the government's response was awful after the hurricane, and not only awful in assisting the people of Puerto Rico and the people from impoverished communities, but they decided that after this hurricane happened, as Naomi Klein puts it, disaster capitalism, they decided it wasn't time for them to shut down schools, to privatize schools. And our ex-secretary of education who left recently, because now she's under investigation by the FBI, mm-hmm. she quit. So our secretary at that time, Julia Kelleher, decided that she wanted to shut down over 300 schools. And... It was very bad for the children of Puerto Rico. The response of the government, people are suffering. People need to go back to normalcy. People need help. Our children are 
with no food, with no electricity in their houses, with no access to water. And here comes the government instead of giving them a hand and helping and relieving the people and are destroying our lives. But there's always hope. And after such a traumatic event for our children, our teachers and our entire population, people stood by each other. And it was the people of Puerto Rico. You know, there's a saying that say that only the people will save the people. So that was demonstrated here, not only because of the solidarity between brothers and sisters from our island, but we experienced solidarity from people from the states, people from different countries, as yourself, as our brothers and sisters who are community for the schools, doing for justice, from the CTU, from more. It was overwhelming the solidarity displayed that we experienced. So it was the people that saved the people. And it's because of this beautiful thing called solidarity that we are right now here where we are. And we were able to stop uh, many school closures, not all of them, but many of them were able to be stopped because of the work that the community did along with the FMPR. And I think definitely our audience should understand that there's a pattern, and particularly with uh, Black and Brown people, when we experience tragedies or disasters, that the response of governments, unfortunately, have been to take advantage of those disasters. And you call it disaster capitalism, where they take over our institution. They use that as an opportunity to seize those institutions, often in an effort to remove the people who live in those places. So we can think about uh, what happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and now the entire system is charter and something that uh, very predictable that happened as a result. The black population in New Orleans plummeted. So now a city that was almost 70% black is now like 46% black. That weakens your political power. But just like in Hurricane Katrina, I think the uh, beautiful part of the story you tell telling, sister, if we can find beauty in a tragedy like that, is how people helped each other and how people said that my brother and my sister is truly my keeper. So I want to say salute to you all for showing your spirit and just your level of humanity, you know, after that tragedy. Now, sister Lourdes, you know, like she said, you all were able to stop, you know, many of the school closing. Uh, why don't you jump us off and just say, what were some of the things that, that parents, young people in communities did to fight well, back? A lot of it is people were so vulnerable after the after the hurricane. I can tell you, my children were out of school for two months after mm -hmm. the hurricane. A lot of it was a game. They were saying that the schools had to be inspected. And when the children were hungry to go back to school, we were hungry for our children to go back to school. Mm -hmm. um, I hear that my family in the United States was talking about taking my children because they were so worried. Then we started hearing about the schools being closed and the community, for example, where I used to live and where my ex-husband and his mother lives, which is a very insular community, Mameyal in Dorado, they mm -hmm. closed that school down. And I still think that it's just such an injustice because it's a very kind of isolated community and it was it was a community school and many of the people who live in that community it's the grandparents who are raising the children or the parents who are working outside of the community and will leave the children with their parents and for example 
my ex-mother-in-law doesn't drive. And when my daughter was at that school, because she was there for two years, she did kindergarten and first grade there. Mm -hmm. She sometimes would go and pick her up on foot to take Mm -hmm. her home. So that what they would do, and it's the same as in some of the mountain communities, that now we're not public uh, school buses. There has not been the past, been a bus system. There was not school transportation. So it just makes things more difficult. I happen to have found a school before the hurricane, which I'm very pleased with. It's a community-based school, but it it does. Mm -hmm. I do have to drive my children to school there. It's not Mm -hmm. close. So I have the advantage of having, of being able to drive. But one of the things that happened too, is they've been playing around. They changed first elementary school was my, the school where they're in was from first to sixth grade. Mm -hmm. Then one year it was right before the hurricane. They announced that sixth grade was now going to be intermediate school. Wow. My daughter was that year. So she lost, she lost her school. My son, my son stayed in the school. So she went to another school and the receptor school that she went to, we actually put her in a specialized school for one year. It didn't work out for us. We did not like it. It was, yes, ma'am. which is what I think, what one of the reasons I think I oppose charter schools, because I think sometimes the color of the socks and the length of the skirt is more important. I was at a school assembly where that principal spent 40 minutes talking about uniforms. And when we, the parents started asking about, Oh, I don't have a math teacher. She says, yeah, 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 yeah. She'd like two minutes to talk about everything that was education related. (laughs) So then the receptor school where my daughter would have gone closed. And then the school where they're at now opened up and now it's a first to eighth grade. Mm. And some of the classrooms are trailers. Yes, ma'am. They took functional schools with functional buildings and they closed them down. And now they have more than 600 students Mm -hmm. and some of them are in trailers in a school. Yes, ma'am. And so when we heard that they were going to go charter, we said no. And we started organizing. And many thanks to Mercedes, because she's the only one who came and had assembly with us and told us. And we just started picking up signatures it's a public radio figure who is the person who wanted to take our school. We did protests that were outside of our school. We were to go to the radio station where she worked. One of her colleagues, we went and did a picket outside of the TV station uh, where he works. We picked up parent signatures. We would go there early in the morning to pick up signatures so that we would have more than 50% of the parents say that they oppose the charter school because the government says if the majority of the students don't want the charter school, then it will not be charter. But they still have not given us a response. Yes, ma'am. The privatization movement has a playbook. And that playbook is basically regenerated and just implemented in place after place. So when they say receptor school, for a lot of folks that are listening in your community, it may be called a receiving school, because that's what they are called in Chicago. When the school is closed, the school that the children are pushed into is called a receiving school. And often what translating. Uh No, no, that's cool. And, And what happens is that then the children's education is disrupted. The University of Chicago did a study. It said that whenever a school is closed, a child loses at least six months in their academic development. So this is not an issue of them not knowing the harm that they're doing. This is about destabilizing the lives of populations that they don't want. And another piece that you reminded me of is that in Chicago, in 2007, we had two good schools in our neighborhood. One was called Jackie Robinson. It was a school of distinction in our neighborhood. It was a K through eight. The other one was called Florence B. Price, which was a fine arts school, which was also a very good school. For no reason at all, the 
city of Chicago said, now we want to make Jackie Robinson a K through three and turn price into a four through eight. And we're going to extend the attendance boundaries. I was in the community meeting where the parents said, no, don't do this because there are gang issues between these different neighborhoods. If you do this, the middle school is going to go up in smoke. Of course, they didn't listen. And Florence B. Price eventually got completely destabilized. Fights broke out between the different neighborhoods. And, and hear this. Two gangs were created after this happened at Price Middle School. One was called Suwu, after something that Little Wayne made up. And another one was called 4-6 Terror, for young people that lived on 46th Street. These little cliques developed into full-fledged gangs. Now, in 2000, um, forgive me, the year's escaping me. I believe it's 2012. A little sister named Hadia Pendleton was murdered. She was murdered by a kid that used to go to Price, but because the school was destabilized, he was a special ed student, never got his IEP met. Now, he was a part of the organization called SUWU. So if you get what I'm saying, those gangs would have never existed if CPS wouldn't have did what they did. So when they do stuff like that, when they change your school structure abruptly, it's all about destabilizing the education of our children. So I, I wanted to make that point and say thank you, Lourdes, for laying that out. Mercedes, can you say a little bit more about some of the resistance that happened? Because you told me a lot of stories, like a 165-day occupation of a school and things like that, that people have done uh, resisting school privatization. In Puerto Rico, we have been fighting against school closures and privatization for the past 25, 26 years. Mm-hmm. It's not new because the uh, playbook is there. Capitalism mm-hmm. is there and has been for such a long time. In 1993, the father of the current governor was the governor of Puerto Rico. He started to try to dismantle our schools by implementing these vouchers. Mm-hmm. And now his son, mm-hmm. 20-some years after, approved it and converted that into law. And I'm telling you this because it's all related. We have been fighting with amazing activists, with parents, with students, with teachers in so many schools. But it's very important for you to know that this is all related, as you say, because what they have done in Puerto Rico, for example, I just saw, it just broke my heart <laughs> last week. I was driving around and I saw this private school that is losing its enrollment because it's not good. Mm-hmm. And it's losing its enrollment, but the Department of Education decided to shut down the only three schools that were public that surrounded that mm-hmm. private school. Mm-hmm. And now as I was driving along this school, this private school this week, I see this huge banner that says public school students welcome with vouchers here. Enrollment mm-hmm. in this private school, please call mm-hmm. such and such number. Mm-hmm. So this is all related. You gentrify, um, gentrification in the school areas, but at the same time, you shut down the only community schools that are available for the children. They have nowhere to go. The schools that are going now is, is very far away. They have no transportation. They're in overcrowded classroom. And here comes this private entity as if it was the salvation. They say, hey, you shut down the three surrounding schools. So here we are close to your home. Come and get the voucher and come to our school. That's right. And this is why we needed to fight against school closures. And this is why there are so many stories of victories in different communities because what is happening now 
is something that we knew that would happen. They did not want only to shut down the schools. They want to shut them down, relocate them, put them in overcrowded classrooms so their education will be affected. Emotionally, they will be affected. They don't care about the bonds that they have within their community members on their schools. And these empty buildings now are being given away for $1 a month to private mm-hmm. corporations to make their businesses. And if they're not given to private corporations, then you have the private schools now that can accept the, uh, the students with the vouchers. So we are facing disaster capitalism on steroids. And mm-hmm. the government is very slick. They will tell you that they're going to shut down 200 schools at the same time at the end of the semester. So organizing one school is hard enough for those of us who organize. Mm-hmm. Imagine having to organize 200 schools at the same time, 300 yes, schools, ma'am. it was another year at the same time. Yes, and ma'am. even though people were so vulnerable, people were fighting. The school that you mentioned, 160 some days, was the Jose Menendez Ayala School in Manatee. The mothers camped in the school. They slept in the school against the school closure that was imposed on the community. The teachers from Dorado, from La Limino Rivera is a school mm-hmm. that parents and teachers were fighting for for 40 consecutive days during the summer. Maria Donet de Fajardo community fought and won, and the school remained open. And what we've done, Gito, is that so many schools have been shut down in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. For you to have an example, they wanted to shut down 800 schools. We were able to save 300, but too many our school are closed. Too many are closed, even though we save 300. Yes, so ma'am. we started a, a movement, and it's called Movement to the Rescue of Our Schools. Mm-hmm. And the community has joined together, and the schools that have been shut down by the government are being rescued by members of the community with the FMPR and different organizations. And we're giving it back to the kids and we're doing popular education and we're doing sports and we're doing art and we're doing anything that the community needs because it's from the community and for the community. But our last and main goal within these schools that are rescued Mm. are to have them reopen as a public school to demonstrate to the government that they are needed Mm. as public schools. So while we are there, working with the children and seeing them smile and seeing them so happy because mm-hmm. they're getting back what belongs to them. We are also fighting for public education and we are fighting a government that needs to acknowledge that the schools need to be open for our kids. Yes, ma'am. I remember you sending out uh, videos of the government actually pepper spraying teachers who were protesting and parents who were protesting to keep their schools open. I just want to make sure that folks hear this, that my sister Lourdes has talked about everything from getting petition signatures to protesting people in their places of work, all the way to actually occupying public spaces like public schools to demand that those schools are reopened. There's a lesson in that. And the lesson that I get from it is that we cannot struggle by the acceptable protest playbook. You know, our oppressors, understand that we may rally, that we may picket, but we have to be prepared to do what they cannot predict. A great man by the name of Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who created what eventually became Black History Month, said the greatest weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the minds of the oppressed. So also here, 
that the work that Mercedes and FMPR did by going school by school, community by community, engaging people has been important in regards to getting the support and winning the people. There's an old quote that says, win the person, you can teach the point. And so I just want to lift up, you know, the fact that we cannot fight by the rules that our oppressors set. We have to be willing to go further and farther and deeper as we organize and save our schools. I can add a few things in our, like one of the, th- the parents were also went around to the community house uh-huh. by house, getting signatures also from the businesses to say that, that they wanted the school to remain in the community and to remain a, a public school. Yes. We went on the radio, but mm-hmm. I don't know if you, like you're familiar right after the hurricane here, the whole country was without electricity. A hundred percent was without electricity and it took to be rebuilding the power grid. And there mm-hmm. was this company that was hired called Whitefish. If you look into it, Whitefish was a, an unknown company with two employees from Whitefish, Utah, I think it was, that oh it turned out had some connection to the federal government. In any case, it was an unknown company and their workers were being paid $500 an hour, whereas union workers from the Electric Power Authority, like the most that they can expect to get paid here is maybe $25 an hour. 85% of people under the age of 25 in Puerto Rico are making minimum wage or less at this moment. Okay. So there was a lot of talk about it, but one of the things that ended up happening is that the people were so angry that they started throwing bottles and rocks at mm. the whitefish employees. And mm. that was the final straw. Cause there was a lot of publicity about it, but mm. I really think that the people throwing bottles and rocks at whitefish mm. is what ultimately got them out of Puerto Rico and got oh somebody God. else to come in. And so it's one of these things that I say when I'm talking to the parents, I say, mm. you know, when you're in a social movement, there will be different players. There will be people who are doing diplomacy Mm-hmm. who sit down at the table and are talking. There mm-hmm. will be people who are carrying the pancartas, the protest signs and marching. Mm-hmm. And there will be people throwing bottles and rocks. That's right. That's right. Because everybody's not going to storm the castle. So again, teachable moment. <laughs> when we do our work often, and this is what I say, the difference between activism and organizing. The organizer understands that you meet people where they are. And some people may be willing to sign their signature to a petition. And as far as they're willing to go, some folks, they'll come to a picket. Some folks will go to a school board meeting. Some folks will make phone calls. And some people will throw bottles and rocks. <laughs> some people <laughs> will storm the castle. So as an organizer, it's really important that we don't expect people to have the same level of outrage that we may have as the organizer. We have to meet them where they are. It's an important lesson, sister. Thank you for that. Mercedes, I want, I want to check in with you on this. FMPR is one of four teachers' federations in Puerto Rico. Is that still the case? Well, two big organizations, the FMPR, the AMPR, and then two other smaller teacher unions as well, which mm-hmm. are our allies and our great comrades of ours. But the work of FMPR, if I understand correctly, has really been more... Uh, centered around building unity between parents and educators and has a lot of support on the ground. I want to commend you for that, sister. What can we do to to stand in solidarity with you and to support? First of all, you've always been in support of the FNPR because solidarity goes um, both ways. Yes, I remember when I met you uh, many years back and the work that we've done together throughout the years. I remember last year when the Law 85 was going to be approved that it was you, actually, in Journey for Justice, 
that sent us more than 20-some letters from different organizations throughout the country requesting our legislature not to approve this bill because of the impact that it was going to have on our children. We had studies from people with doctorate degree, from superintendents, from teachers, from parents, from students, Mm -hmm. from different organizations. And it was very important because there was empirical evidence right there of different studies that showed what was going to happen. And when I presented my deposition in front of the legislature, I handed out all of those letters as addendums. And that was a beautiful display of solidarity right there that they knew at that moment. And they were shocked and surprised that we were not alone in this, Mm -hmm. that there were people talking about what was happening in Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. throughout the the globe. Mm -hmm. And you helped us achieve that. So just by having us here in this program, by writing letters to our governor, Mm-hmm. You can go to our Facebook page and ask our governor that we want Law 85 to be abolished. So people can know in the states right now, we only have in Puerto Rico one charter school. All of mm-hmm. the other 856 schools are public. And this wow. bill was approved. It was approved one year back. They were able to start with 10% of the schools as charter schools last year. They did not do this because of the resistance of the people of Puerto Rico, of the teachers and the parents of Puerto Rico. And since we've been fighting against privatization for so many years, yes, ma'am. parents don't want privatization in their country, so it's hard for them to sell them the charter school or the vouchers. And now, in August, they want to start by expanding those charters. And they are not announcing the list yet. They are doing this at the end of May. But what we are doing is that if you want to stand in support, we need to write to the legislature, to the governor, that we need this law to be abolished. We have so many things to do here. You can write um, letters. You can do videos in solidarity. You can write the Congress of the U.S. because you can vote in the U.S. and whatever laws are approved there will impact the people of Puerto Rico as well. So just standing with us, telling our story, and at the same time telling us what's happening in the state so we can be in solidarity with you because it goes both ways. And as long as we are organizing here and you are organizing there, we are doing what we're meant to, you know, yes, for, for our children and for the working class. So, um, Sister, if you could just reiterate moving forward, and first, thank you, you know, Sister, it's, you've stood side by side with us, and, and that's what this is about. It's an old saying uh, that says, you know, don't conversate, demonstrate. And um, you've been demonstrating um, your love for humanity, your love for solidarity and for justice. So, you know, we're honored to stand with you, sister. And I mean that. That's um, the least that we can do. With the fact that you all have been able to beat back charter school expansion, one of the ideas you had was for an anti-privatization conference in Puerto Rico that we can bring like international attention to. Is that something that you're still interested in? That would be amazing if that would would happen. We actually have Karen Marshall from Rethink, who's Mm -hmm. arriving in Puerto Rico tomorrow from New Orleans. We're going to plan out a gathering, uh, an internship between students from New Orleans and students from Puerto Rico, teachers from New Orleans and Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. and activists from New Orleans and Puerto Rico from June 10th to June 14th, and we are going to have a conference. But if it was something broader, with different 
activists, parents, teachers mm-hmm. from the states. It will be just an honor, you know, for us to to do that, and, and it will be something very big and very important for the people of Puerto Rico. So let's like put this on ink right now that we can look at doing a gathering later this summer that kind of gears up for the start of the school year. How's that sound to you? Um, hands down for that. That's amazing. So you all heard it on, on the ground. So if it don't happen, you all can chase me down the street. We're saying wow. that the Journey for Justice Alliance is uh, going to stand with our sister Lourdes and our sister Mercedes. And we're going to put our heads together to organize an anti-privatization conference in Puerto Rico uh, that can aid in helping to politicize the public and show support around the world for equity in public education, not the scam we know as school choice. All right, so y'all heard it here first. With that, I want to say is thank you, sisters, for joining us today. Lordis, thank you for your fight, for your, your willingness to stand for our children, your willingness to get in the street, even if it's throwing bottles and rocks. <laughs> <laughs> also for being fly with the next level headphones. They, if you see, the, I wear these headphones and it belonged to my 11-year-old child and he uh, got on Amazon and he said, I want these headsets and he used some money that he got from, so like, they're all his. And oh, they I, dope. No, and I, even I, I work in, in infant feeding and I did a webinar and oh, it had to have all, everything connected right and, they, and I use these headphones, so I know that they, yeah. All right, yeah. all right. Next level, next level. <laughs> yeah. And again, Mercedes, sister, thank you for the work you do for being consistent and for being the real deal. The reason, sisters and brothers, that that I'm asking folks to really take note is that I want you just to take a few points from what we said today. That after a horrible disaster, when people could have just given up, the people in Puerto Rico banded together and the FNPR went neighborhood by neighborhood, school by school, house by house, to let people know that there is hope And they have been able to save hundreds of schools in Puerto Rico and and have actually froze charter expansion in Puerto Rico. But the fight is not over. The fight is not over. If we want our children to stand on our shoulders, we have to realize that we're going to have to be uncomfortable. And at the end of the day, the question we have to ask ourselves is what do we leave the next generation other than problems? And so you sisters have been the epitome of the theme of our show today, which is fight the power. So I want to thank you all for joining the On the Ground podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for this opportunity and for your admirable work. I admire your work so much and the work of your Journey for Justice Alliance is just amazing work. So we are honored to have been here. Oh, absolutely, sister. We family. That's how we're going to do it. All right. So with that, sisters and brothers, I want to let you know that the theme of today's show again is fight the power. And why this song is important, because in our struggle, we use music, we use chants that are rhythmic to just remind our people that there's hope. Music often binds us. Music politicizes us. And the reason why public enemy fight the power is so important, because in the song, Chuck D says, most of my heroes don't appear on no stamps. Sample look and you'll look and find nothing but rednecks from 400 years if you check. Public Enemy during that time, if you watch that video, you have thousands of people in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, hanging out the window holding Malcolm X poster. 
this particular song, I think, was the song that let the powers that be know that they had to change hip hop. They had to stop political hip hop because it was doing something to us as young people. I know this because I was in my early 20s when this song came out and we would listen to the music and it would fill our minds with a desire to know more. I remember listening to Public Enemy, Karis One, and going to buy the book, The Destruction of Black Civilization by Dr. Chancellor Williams. This song was the epitome of rebellion expressed by the spirit of hip hop music. And the work that my sisters are doing in Puerto Rico is the spirit of rebellion, no matter how hard it may seem to be. If we look at ourselves through the lens of love and through self-determination and through our national culture, then we can actually begin to reprogram ourselves to be the giants that we're supposed to be and not be who our oppressor thinks we are. I'm going to close with this quote, sisters and brothers here. The greatest weakness of any oppressor is that they always underestimate the oppressed. I'm going to leave y'all with that. Peace and love. And I'll see y'all next week on the ground. Fight the power! 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 We got to fight the power that beat! As the rhythm's designed to bounce with calcium that the rhyme designed to fill your mind now that you realize the prize arrives, we got to pump the stuff to make it tough. Check.